we need to have prayer. So let's pray. Father God, we bow to you as the one true shepherd. Father, we, um, we lift up this session to you this afternoon. Father, uh, we pray for all that are in rule and authority uh, over us, wherever they are. Father, we pray for every minister of the gospel, every bishop, every elder, every deacon, everyone that, Father, has been commissioned to guide souls back to Thee. And that's really all of us, Father. But we do pray for those that You have raised up and called and anointed to be men, leaders of people. Father, I just pray that You would... Uh, Pour a blessing upon us this afternoon as we go through this. Uh, be with me, Father. You know my weaknesses and my failings in this area. And so please don't hold those against me, Father, but just fill me uh, with thy word this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, I've been commissioned to speak on leadership, and uh, I'm going to focus mostly on the godly response to authority. So that's going to be uh, really... Uh, where I spend uh, a lot of my time today. I'm going to be teaching mostly by character, because the Bible is full of characters. As long as there's been people, there's been authority, and men have been responding to it differently all down through the Bible. Now, um, if our culture, though, has any influence on us at all, it's probably going to teach us an ungodly response to authority, the culture that we live in. Now, um, I am from, and you are too, you are the sons of the rebellion generations. Somewhere back in the 1960s, uh, possibly popularized by, by Martin Luther King and some of those, but suddenly rebellion became popular. Now, it was, it's been here since the beginning of the world, but it became popular in this nation somewhere in the 60s to rebel. Now, um, what, has, what has happened is essentially it's become this political way where you can pout until you get what you want. And so, for instance, right now in the state of Idaho, the, the issue of, of homosexuality is, is hot in our state right now. Um, and uh, it was up before the state senate here a few weeks ago, and 200 of these people moved into the state house, locked their arms together, and they blocked all the senators from coming into their, to their ch chamber to do their business. And it went on for hours and hours and hours until they had to arrest these people uh, and, and haul them off to jail before the senators could actually do their job. It's civil disobedience is what these people are committing as a way to get their voice heard. Now, it's very interesting because in the last State of the Union address, uh, President Obama boldly declared that he was not going to be under authority. Now, we heard about those three... Uh, uh, parts of government today, the, the executive and judicial and legislative branches, and how they were meant to, to work together and, and um, be mutually helpful. Um, we saw the, the beautiful unity of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, in, and there was, there's no competition among them. There's not to be in the, in the three elements of the, of the land. But, this, but Obama said, and he's a son of the rebellion generation, he might even be old enough to be one of them himself, but, he said this, I'm going to get my agenda no matter what Congress says or the Supreme Court. And that's the culture that we live in. A culture that is glorifying rebellion. And it's, it's, going to have a, it's going to have an effect on us if we don't have these kind of talks. It is a plague, a 
life of obedience and submission to one of rebellion and revolt. Um, and it is possible that, that uh, if there's other books written, that we could be the illustration of uh, life was used in Ephesians 5, 6 of those who believed vain words and reaped the wrath of God because they are the children of disobedience. Maybe I'm pulling that a little out of context, but that's how I see it. So today we're going to teach by character. I want to read as a, as a scriptural basis Hebrews 13. And um, we'll just read the entire chapter. And I don't know that it's, it's exhortation, so maybe we'll have the sisters read it if nobody's opposed to that. Is that permissible? Okay. The brethren just gave you the authority to read this chapter in their presence. And so why don't you read it verse by verse and just work through verse by verse until it's done. Hebrews 13. And you can start. Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember them that are in bonds, and bound with them, and them which suffer adversity, and being yourselves also in the body. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed and the pile, the whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what men shall do unto me. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith falls, considering the end of their conversation. Jesus Christ, who came yesterday, and today, and forever. Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with me, which have not profited them, but have been occupied therein. We have an altar, altar whereof they have no right to each eat which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good, and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices God is all pleased. Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy, and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. So I beseech you to rather do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now the God of peace, that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom he glory forever and ever. Amen. And I beseech you, brethren, Suffer the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in two words. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he come shortly, I will see you. 
Salute all them that have the rule over you, and all that saints, they of Italy, salute you. Grace be with you all. Amen. Thank you. So let's get started. Um, we're going to teach mostly by character today. We're going to come back to Hebrews 13 at the end, uh, if time allows us. We're going to go through this a little bit. But um, I want to try to answer some questions today. Like, what was God's purpose in asking me to submit to men? Do I have to submit to someone that is ungodly? What might happen if I come out from under authority? Or what is the real cause of my struggle with authority? Um, as we launch into this message, I want, to, I want to assure you that my heart's desire is that we could find that place of blessing. Now, now there is not one thing that God uh, instituted that He did not place a blessing in that thing. And if we find ourselves, if it's instituted of God, it is a blessed place to be in or under or as close to as we can be. Um, now, um, it's we want to find the place that's near to his heart. Cleveland Mackey wrote these words, There is a place of quiet rest, near to the heart of God, a place where sin cannot molest, near to the heart of God. Oh, Jesus, blessed Redeemer, sent from the heart of God, hold us who wait before thee, near to the heart of God. In this in this message on authority, there is a place that is near to the heart of God. Um, that, um, in, in, in my experience, though, I have not discovered that the place that is near to the heart of God is a chummy place where he and I hang out. Just about every single work that God is longing to do in your life he wants to do through other people. I would like for him, I would like to be able to just say, God, I love you, and let it that. But he keeps bringing the most obnoxious people into my life. That's how he works. You know, one of the things I'd like to do is, I'd like to be able to say, thank you for your grace, and let it that. But he says, uh-uh. You deliver it to me on the wings of forgiveness of your fellow man. One more, uh, you know, I'd like to. I would like to just submit to Jesus. I just want to submit, Jesus. I'm submitted to you. Doesn't work that way. He says, then submit to the authority that I have ordained on the earth. So, uh, if we want that place that's near to His heart, probably going to involve some other people. Almost always. Now. Um, if we're going to ask Jesus to hold us near to the heart of God, then we better understand and start with knowing a little bit about the pattern of Jesus' life in relationship to authority. So let's look at uh, John 8, and uh, the 28th verse. John 8, 28, and it says these words, Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please me. The issue was the issue of his 
will. I, I can't understand it entirely, but Jesus had to submit his will to God, the authority in his life. And it looks to me like, at the very end of his life, of his ministry, one of the very last things that happened is we see him in the garden struggling with his will. And at the very end of it all, he says, not my will, but thine be done. That's where he had to get to. I, I want to just propose that you're not even going to get out of the driveway in your journey towards submission to authority because before you have a face-off with your will. Your will. Now, when you have that moment, Jesus has already been there and He will meet you there and he's under, He understands the pain of that moment because He sweat drops of blood then. When He had that... It took... It was tremendously painful for him to give up that will. But he went to the cross then, and that's where he got crucified. But that wasn't the end. So often we look at our will and we're like, well, what happens if I give it up? What happens if I let it die? Well, the other side is a resurrection. It's life. It's a place at the Father's right hand. And that can be the same for us in the issue of authority. Now, there is no effective leader... Uh, that has not first submitted himself to authority. Um, the centurion that I told you about earlier that said that he came to Jesus and he said, I've got men, I've got a hundred men that I say jump and they, they jump. Um, you know what that same man said? He said, I've got a servant at home. And he said, I just want you to say the word and heal this man. He said, I am not worthy for you even to come to my house. It is a beautiful picture of a, of a man who is in authority under authority. That is, a, that, is a, that is a true leader. We'll see more of that as we go along. Um, so the first profile is that of Moses. Um, the first man that was called to be a leader of a group of people. So before Moses, it was more of a patriarchal type society. It was to some extent afterwards. But men were leaders of their own clans, their families. But God had a tremendous work that, that required the movement of a lot of people and he needed a man to do it. He needed a man. He didn't have to have a man, but he wanted a man to do it. And so he picks this uh, this fella that had been pulled uh, pulled out of a river uh, as a child. He had been raised in luxury. Um, uh, we don't hold uh, the fact that David was uh, raised a hippie. Uh, Moses was raised in Pharaoh's house. Um, and and the Lord can make great people, uh, great men out of folks that have have. Any kind of a past. Keep that in mind when we go out to evangelize. Uh, we might be actually talking to the next Apostle Paul. Uh, uh, those kind of people can do some amazing things. Anyway, um, so he, pulled, he got pulled out of the river. And uh, just imagine what it was like to be Moses, raised, raised in Pharaoh's house in, in opulent luxury while all of his peers were being raised as slaves, making bricks, and, and then he decides one day he's going to make an attempt at leadership. And so his very first attempt was an absolute disaster. He, ended, he, he comes out and he's got a zeal for justice. And he decides to try to work an issue out. And in the end, he ended up, he ended up killing the guy. And alienating the whole country against him. And he has to start fleeing. So this is the, this is the man that God's going to work with. Um, he, uh, 
few other things about him is, is he had a speech impediment. I don't know if he just stuttered terribly or what, but he didn't feel like he could speak. The man seemingly had no self-esteem. He, he was very low on himself. And, and while he was on the backside of the desert, he, he married this other woman and entered a, a biracial marriage. And so God brings this, this man back, and uh, he's going to be the leader. God's first uh, man to lead people. Now, if God picks your authority, and he probably will, he will pick your authority, there's a very good chance that you're going to be asked to come under somebody like Moses, stuttering, low self-esteem. I don't know what all the issues are going to be in his life. But um, he probably won't stand head and shoulders above all the other men. And if, if your leader has a limp, praise the Lord, he'll probably be an effective leader. Well, anyway, um, so have you, ever have you ever struggled in your life to just respect basic men, tax collectors, fishermen? Imagine submitting to a fisherman if you're, you know, um, Gamaliel or somebody that's um, uh, Nicodemus. Men that were had a lot of intelligence, and, and they're, they're asked to come under a, a fisherman. Well, anyway, that's the way the Lord works it. Um, you know what your temptation is going to be? Is you're going to start looking at the man, and you're going to say, there's nothing special about him. In fact, he even has an Ethiopian wife. Let's look at this a little bit. Numbers 12. Numbers 12. In fact... He has an Ethiopian wife. And Miriam and Aaron spake unto Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. Now this was before the law was given, it was before the Mosaic law, it was before there was any law that I know of, and I don't know if there's ever been a law that God ordained that you shouldn't marry someone from another culture. God always said, you're not to, not to marry a heathen. That's who you were not supposed to marry. But he never said anything about marrying someone of a different skin color. And Miriam suddenly has this thing in her head, he's got an Ethiopian wife. This is his biological sister. What is she thinking? Was she embarrassed? Possibly. There was something about it that just kept niggling. Or was it? You see, well, let's read verse 2. And they said, hath the Lord... Oh, wait, something's changing here. And they said further, hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses... Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. Now, what we find very, very quickly is that at the bottom line, at the conflict, was this little phrase, What about me? It had absolutely nothing to do with the Ethiopian wife, but it had everything to do with, What about me? Shouldn't I be the one that's in authority? Have you ever struggled with that? You see, when we begin to set ourselves up against authority, many times we, we trumpet the Ethiopian wife, but usually it's, what about me? The, the real answer comes in verse 2. Well, fortunately what happened was is uh, God intervened at that point, and she became a leper. Just like that. Now it's very doubtful that the first time you oppose authority in your life, it's very doubtful you're going to become a leper. But I can assure you, if you're not put out of the camp and brought to repentance in some way, the net effect is going to be the same. The end of leprosy is death. And that is where those who refuse to learn to submit to authority ultimately end up. is death. So that was Miriam. Well, you know, um, she wasn't satisfied really with her calling. She had a role to fill. 
she was a leader among those people, but she wasn't satisfied with her role. Now let's let's do the second profile, and and um, if I would have had time, we would have read this whole chapter in Numbers 16. Turn a couple pages over to Numbers 16. Another very interesting profile of a man that struggled with authority in his life, Korah. Um, now, Korah, as I understand it, was a minister of the tabernacle. Um, if you'll look down in, in verse 9, let's read verse 9. Uh, Moses said unto Korah, Here I pray you, sons of Levi, seemeth it but a small thing unto you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister unto them. Korah's job was in the temple or the tabernacle at that time. His job was a leader already. He was already a leader. And that's what Moses is saying. Isn't it enough for you? Well, um, verse 2 indicates, uh, let's look at verse 1. It says that Korah, the son of all these folks, anyway, he took men, and they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. These were the cream of the crop. These were other leaders that he went out and got excited about his, his cause. Now, Korah's rationale went something like this in verse 3. Everybody is holy. There's nothing special about Moses. We knew that from the very beginning. The man couldn't talk. The man was, was a disaster with his first attempt. He had an Ethiopian wife or whatever that meant. Um, you know, he wasn't the poster boy of what everyone would have thought. Now, um, and so what happens is, is Korah says, everybody's holy. There's nothing special about you, Moses. And so your authority is not legitimate. Anybody can do your job. We have the right, every single one of us have the right to your job. Well, the, the, the seed of this thought kind of spread through the camp, and um, I like what happens um, it's rather sad, but it came to pass that the uh, this is what Moses said the next day. He said, let's, let's just get everybody together. And it looks to me like um, all the people had kind of gathered around Korah. And um, Moses shows up in verse 25, and he spake into the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest ye be consumed in all their sins. And so he says, get out of here. And that's what they did. Uh, uh, and these, the, the people got up. They got up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram on every side. And they stood in the door of their tents and their wives and their sons and their little children. And Moses said, he goes on, he said, if these men die the common death of all men, then, then I'm not legitimate. But if God does something new today, and he opens up this earth, and these men get down, go down quick into the pit, then apparently I was legitimate. And no, he had barely stopped speaking, and it came to pass as he had made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that was under them, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up. Now can you imagine the drama of that? Well, the next thing that happened was fire from God came down and smote those 250 men. You know what they had in their hands? They had these sensors. They had sensors in their hands, and suddenly the ground was littered with 250 sensors. And so they said, you know, these sensors have been hollowed to the Lord, so what are you going to do with these things? 
And so they took those sensors and they melted them down and they made them a covering uh, for the for the ark. I believe I have to pull, pull that out, but it was to be a testimony to everyone that came after them. Um, and it says, the censors of these sinners against their own souls, let them make them broad plates for a covering of the altar. For they offered them before the Lord, therefore they are held in the children of Israel, and uh, they were made broad plates to be a memorial unto the children of Israel, that no stranger, which is not of the seed of Aaron, come near to offer incense before the Lord, that he be not as Korah. And so from that moment on, they had this, they had this, this, this reminder that went with them. Everywhere they went, they had this golden covering to remind them to not be like Korah uh, in, their, in their dealings with authority. Someone has said that, um, that for those who remove themselves from authority, they discover that the world opens wide its mouth and still is willing to swallow them up. Coming out from under God-ordained authority is a very dangerous thing. The, uh, the third profile I want to get is, is uh, King Saul in 1 Samuel 16. Now, um, when King Saul, or when Saul came to the kingship, he came with great meekness and humility and, and seemingly tremendous respect for the anointing of the Lord. Um, but, uh, well, then there was Samuel. You ever wish that it could just be you and God and not Samuel? You know what I call Samuel? I call Samuel God's field man. And God's field man showed up very early in uh, the reign of Saul. And, and, and you know, I can be a lot like Saul and say, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Even while all around me there's this bad ooh, all around me, and I said, I have come, I have completed the commandment. And then God's field man shows them this. What about all these oxen? What about the bleeding of these sheep? Well, he uh, uh, Samuel was definitely a thorn in King Saul's side. We take our disobedience and we sugarcoat it. And uh, instead of doing that, what we have to do with our disobedience is take it and write one word across it. Witchcraft. Because that's what the field man said to call it. Samuel, when he had a talk with Saul, he says, this is not just sugar-coating whatever. This is, this is like witchcraft. It's abomination to God. And God's wrath comes upon the children of disobedience. Okay. So, a uh, key point, when Saul came out from under Samuel's authority, he began a spiritual decline that ended with insulting a witch. Um, now, I bet you that, that everyone here knows of somebody that was hurt by bad leadership. We're going to get into that in just a little bit. And so, what do they, what do they normally do? Well, they strike out on their own with no authority. Um, and you know what the, their lives look like. This is what happens. I've been around long enough to see this. When becoming a leader to themselves, they ultimately rebel against their own conscience and they violate their own souls. If you can't bring yourself under authority, you will soon, you will soon be rebelling against your own conscience and violating your own soul. It's not a cakewalk once you get out from under authority. 
Everybody's been called to be under authority. This is not something that's just about bishops. This is, um, you know, wives and, and, and young sisters. You're going to be under a man's authority. And the Bible's very, very clear about that. You're going to be under authority. Um, children are called to be under the authority of their parents. And uh, every, every baptized believer is called to be under the authority of God. And then just in case anybody's missed, Peter says in the fifth chapter, uh, in the fifth verse, he says, And yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. Just to make sure none of us are able to escape that. Well, wouldn't it be nice if we only had to submit to 1 Timothy 3 men? Starts out. A man desires the office of the bishop. He desires a good thing. A bishop then must be blameless. Can I read that chapter? Not a problem, Lord. Give me a man like that to submit to. Who couldn't submit to a man like that? He's not stubborn. He's not self-willed. He's, he's doing his finances just right. Um, he's not a novice. There's all these things. But unfortunately, it's just not that way. Almost always tied to authority is the fact that you're going to be under authority that's less than perfect that has a stutter and a limp and something else. Um, wives are going to be under imperfect husbands, maybe even ungodly spouses. The Bible talks about that situation. And children are going to be under imperfect parents. And so we have to talk a little bit about how to, how to be under... Uh, what, what, is, what do we do in a situation where we're under this type of authority? And we have to turn uh, to 1 Samuel 25 for a beautiful story about a lady named Abigail and, and try to get just a little bit of a picture. <coughs> Abigail was a wonderful, beautiful, godly woman. And uh, this lady, though, was married to a man whose name was Fool. His name was Nabal. And, and one day, uh, some shepherds or some, some men had helped out his shepherds out in the field uh, and had blessed them in a tremendous way and then these men when they got hungry showed up and, and said to Nabal that they would like to just have a little food. And Nabal, why well, just think about having this man for your husband. He despite he treated them despitefully and he drove them away. Well, so he was he had arguably crossed the line, way over the line of authority. Uh, so now what should Abigail do? Well, she, um, she was at a very uh, critical point in her life because Nabal was her authority. What do you think she did? Well, the report came in like this. Your, son, your husband's basically been a fool and he's got the enemy angered and they're coming up here to kill him. She was, determined, she was informed that evil was determined against her miserable husband and she snapped into action. Get the asses! Clean out the pantry. Bring the bread and the grapes and the wine. And, and I just get a sense that she got things moving in her house. And they got on their asses and they went out there and they found David. And she falls down before him and she says, I was unaware of the situation. My husband is indeed a fool. Um, would you just, just put it all upon me? Just, just, just take your wrath out on me. These men have swords. They're ready to come up there and clean Nabal out. And here she is. Now, men, think about that. What would happen if a, if a woman just fell down and said, take all your wrath out on me? It'd probably disarm you, wouldn't it? Um, that's exactly what happened. David, David just like, okay, whatever. <laughs> they accepted the gift. 
And she goes home and just imagine her knees shaking. And these men were, you know what these men were? They came out of the cave of Dulem. These guys were fierce. They were rough looking guys. And, uh, and they were, they were all in debt to somebody who had committed murder or something. And, and this was the group she came up against. And so she's coming along, she's going home, ah, and she's trembling, and she gets close to home. What do you suppose she's going to find when she gets there? You know, I, I suppose that all of us, man, we, we imagine that, yeah, we'd be contrite, you know, and, yes, sorry, honey, <laughs> made a mess out of that one. Um, but, um, no way. When she got home, the Bible says that Nabal had fixed himself a feast fit for a king. This guy was home picking out on food, and he was drunk. Now, can you imagine? What do you think about that, wives? I can almost feel the heat coming off of you. Doesn't that just about boil you? Well, so she comes in there, and this is a critical, critical time in her life. Um, well... Um, she could have done several things. She could have lashed out at him. She could have done nothing and just let her husband get what was coming. Um, she could have secretly aided in his overthrow. But she continued to honor God by not sinning against her authority. In no way was she condoning what her husband was doing. So often when people find themselves under poor or bad or even ungodly authority, the response is to act in kind. They begin looking. And I can just imagine how quickly Abigail could have taken on some holy wrath and done a lot of damage. But she continued to honor God. Now, God, this is a, this is a key thing. God is very aware of the authority that you are under. Don't think for a moment that God doesn't know who your authority is or what they're doing. He's aware of that. And more than that, uh, he is keenly interested in our response to that authority. And he is waiting to provide a place of quiet rest for those who will continue to walk with him. Uh, the life of Abigail reveals that God can take an ugly situation and make it ultimately shine forth to his glory. Uh, interestingly enough, God was preparing for her a second husband who knew what being under that authority was all about. Her husband-to-be was a man who uh, had an authority in his life that lied to him. An authority that made him a fugitive. An authority that was passionate about killing him. And an authority that had slaughtered all the true priests of God in the land. Ever been under an authority like that? Not even close. Maybe he has a little stutter, but he hasn't done all of that. Time and again, David could have taken the life of his authority that was no longer subject to God, but he was restrained by something. Don't you, don't you see that in David's life? He's restrained. He's given his golden opportunity right there, and it's like he can't do it. What was he restrained by? He was restrained by the anointing of God. Every time he decided it felt like he wanted to do it, the anointing of God stopped him. Saul was an anointed man. If he would have killed Saul, 
two injuries would have occurred simultaneously, one to the heart of Saul and one to the heart of David. <clears throat> you know, he was so in respect of that anointing that he even did an act of honor after he was dead. Actually, he did lots of acts of honor. You think about Mephibosheth and some of those that just came to my mind. There were many acts of honor. Remember that, that young Amalekite that came and said, I finished him off? And he indicted him right on the spot for not respecting the anointing of the Lord before take off the man's head, kill him. And, and although, from our way of thinking about it, that sounds very wrong, but it was a final act of honor to the anointing of God on King Saul. I don't know if you've ever felt that spirit of righteousness, or at least so advertised, welling up within you. Something has got to happen in this situation. This is not fair. They should not be doing that. This is not a man of God. Quick, bring me the sword. You ever felt like that? With your authority? Sure you have. All the while, though, we're doing that. We're forgetting that the greatest need in that moment is in our own heart. That is a moment that God is working. God is working. That brings up a thought. I want to just go really quickly to this. We were with a man recently, an old, an old uh, man, believer, and uh, he was talking about evangelism. And he said, one of the questions I like to ask people when I go up to them is, what has God been doing in your life? And I thought, that's an odd question. And he said, God's working in everybody's life. There are things that, whether that person even knows it or not, uh, God is working in their life. And, and uh, I just found that kind of refreshing. That God's already been there. When we go to the campus tomorrow, He's already been there. He's been working in it. He created every life that's there. And He's got a plan for every life. And He is, he is, he is working in it already. And, and we trust He's going to use us for just a couple of hours. So that's exciting. Now, um, I know that all this sounds ideal but irrational. But remember, we're talking about the godly response to authority. David and Abigail found this place of quiet rest that's near to the heart of God. The place of blessing is under authority. Uh, there is, though, a tremendous movement, uh, at least in, in our culture, uh, that is against uh, authority, separation from it. You know, I speak to a lot, a lot of people Every day, uh, interestingly enough, when I think of social history from people, one of the legitimate questions to ask is about their religion. And so I, 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 it's not, uh, it, it's kind of interesting, because I at least get to ask them whether they go to church or not and sneak a few more questions in. But, um, but many, many people tell me, yes, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm a Christian or whatever, but I'm not religious. I don't go to church. And uh, apparently there's a ton of people out there right now that have this really super relationship going on with God. But they don't go to church and they're not in submission to anyone. Uh, I have a brother-in-law one time to describe it like this. They have a beautiful terrain. It just doesn't fit on anybody else's track. It's also going nowhere. Um, anyway, that is not the will of God. It's not a place of blessing. The Bible says we perceive His love in our life when we lay down our lives. Uh, we also lift up His will when ours is lifted, put down. So, uh, anyhow, there's a good chance that at some point you're going to come under authority that's less than godly. And what should your response be? Let's look at a couple of things. So, uh, here's, the, here's the critical moment. You're under this, this authority. 
It was supposed to be 1 Timothy 3 kind of authority. That's what you'd agreed to submit yourself to. But it didn't turn out to be that way. So now what do you do? You've got a problem. Well, the first thing I want you to, to do is check your heart. Is the concern I have uh, against this leadership, is it, is it the real issue or is it my will? Is it really the Ethiopian life or is it an Absalom spirit? I think one of the brethren mentioned Absalom early on. I think it was Joseph. Joe. Uh, he mentioned Absalom early on. And he was a man that basically just, he, he wanted to be king. He sat by the gate and basically told people, the king can't hear your small problems. I can. And uh, furthermore, uh, he doesn't have men to even listen to you. And uh, by the way, if I was king, I would make sure you were taken care of. And uh, just a horrible spirit. And, and undergirding it all was a lust for power and authority. Check your heart. Is it really the Ethiopian wife? It might be an absolute spirit. Is this issue something that others are seeing? 1 Timothy 5.19 says, Against an elder received not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Let me just remind you that just because you can get 250 people that are the heads of the tribes and nobles in the camp to agree with your position does not make it right. We learned that already today. Uh, just because you have 250 men that tell you you are right doesn't make it right if they're being motivated by rebellion. And if it's rebellion that's motivating, it will be revealed. It will be. Maybe not like fire, like it was in that day, but it will be revealed. Uh, thirdly, have I entreated my authority as a father? 1 Timothy 5.1 says, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. And I just, when I, when I see that spirit of entreaty, I can't help but think of Abigail again. Have I gone to my authority with an Abigail spirit, falling down, saying, you know what, it's probably all my fault, but this is kind of how I see it. Have you used that beautiful spirit? Number four, have I waited on the Lord. You know, I, I'm, an, I, I'm a very impatient person. I don't know if I told you that part about me, but I'm a very impatient person. And I struggle to wait. I, I just simply don't, cannot wait. Um, but uh, if authority is set up by God, God is well aware when that authority has gone bad. I'm reiterating that. God is well aware of it. And um, He has a plan for your life. Have you stopped and waited? In both David and Abigail's case, when, the, when God closed one door, He opened up another door. They were not called to jump from bad authority to no authority. And I want to make a case that it is possible, if God is aware of the authority that you're under, if it is not the authority that He would have for it to be, He is able to transition you from one authority to another authority with you ever, without you ever having to be your own authority. But you'll probably have to wait. Is my response honoring the anointing of God? Timothy tells us that leadership that rules well is worthy of double honor. So what does that say about leaders that don't rule well? Well, apparently, they're still worthy of a little bit of honor. Maybe like one honor. Um, does 
is my response honoring the anointing of God? Let's go to Hebrews 13 for just a few minutes because um, I want to just talk about these three things that you can do for your leadership. Three things we're called to do. Verse 7, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow. Remember them. Keep them in mind that you're under authority. Let's also read the rest of this, though, because, because I could have almost given the impression that it doesn't really matter what the situation is, you just need to hang out there because God will ultimately take care of it. But let's read the rest of this. It says, Consider the end of their life or their faith. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's critical to remember as, as you consider the life of a leader. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, furthermore, be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace. And so if your leader is going off on diverse and strange doctrines, the Bible doesn't encourage you to just get carried up with that. Um, I would like to go to the next one. Obey. 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for it's unprofitable for you. God is not only aware of your authority, but He has a special little thing in judgment for them. The men that you are under are going to stand before God and give an account for your soul. And that, that causes tremendous trembling in us as leaders. Thinking of my own congregation, I just imagine standing before God. And he says, well, what about Anthony? What about Myron? What about Daniel? What about all their children? And, and just imagine going through that entire list of everyone that's in the congregation. And I am called to give an account for, for the, my teaching and my leading in that congregation. Ministers need to beware. And so, so keep that in mind. They're going to give an account for you someday. Your name will come up in their judgment. Finally, it says, salute, in verse 24, all them that have the... Why do you think it says this? Salute all them that have the rule over you. And then he adds, and all the saints. This is a letter uh, that was written to the, to the Hebrew people, the Hebrews, wherever this is, and uh, the last thing he writes is salute all them. Just uh, you suppose what was he saying? Give your leaders a hug for me. Go up and give them a big holy kiss. Why did he put this in? It's probably because he knew that people struggled with leadership. And so the last thing he says, hey, by the way, salute the leaders for me. And uh, I don't know what that means for us, but but try to. I, I challenge you to do that. <laughs> Hug your leaders. It's uh, it's a huge job, and, and they love you, and, and they want to uh, they want to provide a place for you. Uh, now uh, we could go on, but I want to have some time to for discussion, and uh, hopefully David's ready to answer some of his questions that was given to him the other day on this issue. Uh, but maybe we could hand out these uh, these questions. There are many many other things we could have uh, gone into today as far as authority goes. But hopefully that gives us a little overview of the scriptural position that we should be under. The first question, I'll just uh, put this out here for a thought. 
And that is, in what ways can we develop a spirit of submission in a culture of rebellion? So think about that and maybe make some suggestions. How can we foster, maintain, or, or develop a spirit of submission in a culture of rebellion?
right into the second question, actually. What are ways that it could appear that we are under authority, but subtly be far from it? The way you speak of it, outside of there you go. Oh, yeah. It appears. Mm -hmm. Well, this reminds me of you know, the story of the toddler. That you're holding, so you make the application. Um, you're standing up in the side chair. Daddy said, sit down. He said, sit down. Sit down. Finally, he got in trouble and he sat down. And then a little while later, he said, I'm still standing up. Mm, very good. Any other thoughts on that? Then, uh -huh. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. By talking back when they say something or using disrespectful things. The third is more of a statement. Nearly every excellent, because I want you to remember, every excellent work in your life that God is currently doing, He is using ordinary people to do them. Are you willing to be under a stuttering leader with an Ethiopian wife? Just a question I want you to take home with you. Um, let's look at number four. Can your leadership say no and still get your respect? Can they give you counsel about issues that are close to you without it becoming a porcupine disaster. And that's just that's just something that leadership deals with. They they see something in a person's life and they're just agonizing about it. And then they go over and they try to touch it, it just like prickles all over. And uh, can they can they say no and still get your respect? I think back to number two, that's another way to be far from authority is don't ask for advice or blessings on things you're planning on doing. And if we know that they might say no, then just don't say anything about it at all. Yes, there's a very wrong phrase that some people use for their life, and that is it's easier to get forgiveness than permission. And uh, that's not a good way to live. Retirement. 
and just distribute the authority throughout the congregation. Is that not the way God set it up? So God didn't set it up that way. What else? We'd find that we're not good leaders ourselves also. We have the same tendency. We're just very disappointed with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yes? Well, if you think about in a nation when they say there's no, you know, everything's equal, for example, is communism. So it's close as you get to it. So you can't really have no leadership. You have to have leadership. That is a true fact. There will be leadership. Somebody will take power ultimately and become the leader. That's just the way it works. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that question? Anthony? Leadership is designed by God to be a blessing, and it facilitates growth and progress. Without that, there's chaos. It is a quiet place near to the heart of God when we're under authority. It's just a beautiful thing. I'd like to share under the number five ways to support leadership. I kind of slid past that one really fast. And I just, to be very brief, um, my wife and I and our family, you know, with a friend, uh, did a number of trials in life. And the, the, the greatest one that we have experienced in our marriage yet was this winter and just wrestling through some things for months. And I couldn't get, neither one of us could find peace with this thing. And so, I didn't know what to do. I mean, I, I was literally just t- being torn up, you know, in, in a good way, but I mean, I'm telling you, challenging. And I finally, I thought, you know, I can go to my dad, who's one of our leaders too, but I thought, you know, I'm just going to go to him and just tell him the situation and say, you know what, I, I can't get where I need to get with this, and I need help to point, and I'm just asking, can you just appoint at least a couple brothers, families, situation in general. It's it's in your lap. I'm not trying to add your things to do. And I left out there a free man. And got a phone call a few days later. He said I appointed Damon and Joe. And anyway, um, they came over. The bottom line was in the end, they didn't tell us exactly what to do in that situation. But I was a free man. God blessed that time in a way that I cannot describe in words. And it's because it's something that God has ordained to work. And I believe that that situation was not something that biblically had to go to leadership at all. I mean, it was not, okay? But God was testing. Grant, will you you go that far? Looking back, I believe that's what you're testing. And so it, it was a tremendous growth for the life of Thank you for sharing that. And you know, when God anoints a man to be a leader, he is he is wanting him to be a man that is touched with the infirmities of his of his congregation. And so ideally he ought to be someone that if he's Grant's leader, he feels he feels burdened for Grant's problem. He wants to see resolve and he's willing to get involved to help that happen. Um, so thank you I think the time is up I want to just read this final statement God wants to bless you in fact he has a place where you can choose to be if you will under godly men 
The Bible is clear that a lousy leader who doesn't blow his trumpet and fails to lead the flock away from danger is in serious jeopardy. If you find yourself under authority that is walking in the flesh, beware, not so much of the man, but of your own heart. God keeps close tabs on his under-shepherds. He knows the situation you are in. In fact, he has a plan for your future, but only if you are willing to trust the future to him. Quietly wait, support, pray for, entreat, submit if at all able. And if he needs to take you to another authority, he can do this without the dangerous position of you being your own authority. I thought we might uh, sing a hymn, um, and I would suggest 356. Nearer, still nearer. I might just add that a bishop is a is a biblical term. It's not uh, necessarily Catholic. It's uh, not necessarily Mennonite. It's not uh, something on a chessboard. Uh, just wanted to clear up some of those things. I've got all the other questions in my pocket. <laughs>